what is the natural progression of your financial life from student to resident to attending physician? What is the impact of investor behavior in determining your end goal finances? How can you enjoy the now while still planning for a good tomorrow? Learn the answers to these questions and many more on this episode of the Talk To Me Doc podcast. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from Resolve, a physician contract review company. At Resolve, they believe that knowledge is power for physicians and that power gives you control over your financial future. Resolve believes that by mining, analyzing, and synthesizing data, they can provide you with the information and insight that empowers you to diagnose the health of your career, fully understand your worth, and maximize your potential. As a company founded by doctor for doctors, Resolve's focus is on the well-being of those whose purpose in life is to care for the well-being of others. To have this incredible company review your employment contract, find them at Dr. Podcast Network slash Resolve. The link is also in the description of the show. Welcome to the Talk to Me Doc Podcast, where it's all about serving the early career physician. Let's talk about the unique issues that face us so we can create a better future for ourselves and those to come. And now your host, Dr. Andrew Tisser. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Talk to Me Doc Podcast. This is Andrew. For my returning listeners, thank you so much. For my new listeners, welcome. Thanks for giving us a try. You're in the right place because today, like on every episode, you're going to hear from the best guests all around healthcare and beyond about issues relating to the early career physician. Today's guest is Tyler Olson. Tyler is a financial planner for physicians as they transition out of their training. He supports the decision-making and planning process for physician families by focusing on real wealth, the life and experiences that his clients really value. He also supports students, residents, and fellows by providing free access to financial guidance, primarily on the hashtag MedTwitter community. His family and himself live in Southwest Michigan, just a few miles from Lake Michigan. Well, I'm excited. Let's get Tyler onto the show. Tyler Olson, welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. So, Tyler, um, I've recorded a little bit about you previously, but in your own words, can you tell the listeners kind of who you are, what you do, and uh, what your role is uh, in healthcare? Um, yeah, I'm a financial planner. I uh, primarily work with uh, physicians and their families, helping them to uh, make good financial decisions and plans. So, um, I do that on a formal basis with, uh, with a, a limited number of families, but then I, I spend a considerable amount of time also trying to provide guidance, uh, and, uh, and support to medical students and residents, um, in like, uh, the, like the medical Twitter community. That's, uh, that's primarily where I reside and, uh, you know, try just trying to provide some clarity when it comes to finance, because the world of finance is inherently confusing. Yeah, and somewhat predatory at times, I think. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, the motivation behind many businesses, I mean, all business, of course, is to make money, but there are some business structures that uh, unfortunately take advantage of people that are busy, that uh, are focused on other things, and are inclined or at least have the potential to have a, a high income. And so that describes the physician. You guys are really, you guys are incredibly busy. Uh, you know, you've been in school and training for eight plus years uh, or you know, 12, 12 years. And like, you know, finance is probably one of the last things that you think about. Yeah, except for weird people like me that like to think about it. But 
which they're more of. But let's, you know, I, w- I brought you on the show today because I want to take a little bit of a different approach to finances uh, rather than the usual, you need disability insurance, minimize debt, et cetera, et cetera. I want to talk about um, sort of the mindset of uh, the medical student to the resident to the early attending um, when it comes to finances in general and then uh, behavior um, as it pertains to uh, you know, looking towards the future and making positive decisions. So, um, to start it off, I want to I want to talk about uh, the medical student, right? So, no income coming in um, and debt piling on. They don't need you know they don't need to learn about finances, right? <laughs> um, I mean, there isn't a lot of you know th- there's not a lot of action that can be taken, you know, from a financial perspective for a medical student. There. I mean, there is budgetary things that can be done because they're trying to manage uh, their the cash flow of loan disbursements if they've taken on debt. And there's you know, oftentimes the cost of school and uh, exams and applications and, of course, the cost of living can exceed those disbursements. And so trying to manage their life in terms of budgeting and making good debt decisions can be challenging. Um, it, I think, I think most, most people that go into medical school, they probably don't realize that going into it. Um, and so if, I mean, anyone, anyone who is considering going into medical school really does themselves, uh, a favor by looking into like what it means to create a budget, what it means to take on different forms of debt. Um, so like there are definitely segments of finance, like investing, and, uh, you know, like you, you mentioned disability insurance, but like investing and a comprehensive financial planning, estate planning, tax planning, those things are not applicable to medical students. But the, the budget planning and debt planning is something that I do believe is, is worth uh, digging into for them so that, I mean, it's not so much that they're going to be able to become debt free. That's impossible if they're taking on student loans. But there is a way that they can mitigate the damage. And so I think it is worthwhile to do that. Yeah, that's that's reasonable. I think um, at least taking an interest in what's to come um, it would be helpful for the medical student. But overall, I think uh, I think not not a whole lot to do uh, in those years. But OK, so you graduated, newly minted MD or DO, um, matched into residency. Uh, you're starting in July. Loans are going to technically come due um, if uh, if you don't uh, put them into an income driven plan. Um, so, what are the things start that may, you know you got a couple months off here before you start residency? What should the residents start thinking about? Uh, this is a this is a really good time to be able to put in my mind three things in order: um, tax filing decisions, cash flow, and then ultimately the the debt plan so first tax filing the tax filing is actually related to the debt plan because if you are planning to um activate an idr uh and you are married um your tax filing status decision can affect what your idr will be in the future so even like a lot of fourth year students i'm talking to right now about the importance of of thinking about the ramifications of whether you should file jointly or separately for 2020 um, after that is, you know, budget and cash flow planning, because 
you know, a lot of a lot of students are bridging the gap between their last loan disbursement, you know, in early spring and their first paycheck, which I think best case scenario is like July 15th. And so you've got moving expenses, you have, uh, you know, time that you're, you know, needing to eat and live and, you know, money's going out the door. And so, I mean, it might be that you have savings. Uh, I think for the most part, a lot of students and incoming interns are bridging the gap with credit cards. I mean, if you, if it's just, if that's like your only choice, I mean, trying to find like 0% credit cards that can just kind of bridge the gap until you start getting a paycheck. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's not like that goes away right away because, you know, you're making like 3000 maybe $3,500 take home pay per month as a resident at first. And, um, you know, where you're living, your cost of living would you know, there's some variability in how soon you could pay off that credit card debt. So trying to look at the cash flow is important. Um, and then third, the actual debt repayment plan, trying to figure out what you're going to do. You know, if you're going to go for PSLF, uh, then that actually might nece- necessitate uh, loan consolidation right after you graduate. Um, I actually had uh, Dr. Tyler King on my podcast a couple of months ago, or he did that last year. He's a first year resident. Um, because he wanted to go for PSLF. Um, uh, but you have like this six month waiting period or grace period from graduation where you have no payments, um, which can be a good thing if you're not going for PSLF. But if you are and you're trying to get moving on those payments, um, that might be something that needs to be done toward the end of May. So, um, but if PSLF is not on the table and you're just trying to manage your cash flow uh, between, you know, or during during residency, then picking the right IDR for your family would be the next step, and that's basically trying to figure out what your what your savings rate is as a family, what you can afford, so that you can just tread water during training. Yeah, I agree. I mean, so much is just is treading water in residency. I, like, for example, my wife and I both have massive uh, loan balances, um, and I was never going to be in a position to to get PSLF, and and my wife always was in a position. Um, so, you know, her, it was really important to get her paperwork in order and a little less so for me. Um, but I think, uh, all that's very important, you know, for, as a blanket statement, I'd usually tell people to get into one of these IDRs and then figure it out kind of later if they need to. Um, but so that, you know, those are good points, but what, you know, so you got, you're telling us all this and then, you know, the incoming residents as well, you know, that's a, this is already stressing me out. I don't even want to talk about it. Can I just kind of just... <laughs> forget yeah. about it right and that's a lot of residents yeah no you're right i mean i i just said a lot of things and like it comes out fast out of my mouth because it's like i mean it's it's what i do every single day and uh and so it's it's definitely a point of stress and anxiety when i mean they're trying to they're trying to get traction going with their program and they've they've got a lot to do and i mean uh, to my understanding, intern, intern year is really, really rough. Um, so like behavior and trying to limit the amount of energy that has to go in to financial decisions, I think is really is is really key. That requires a bit of, it requires commitment, but it also requires a determination that I'm going to dedicate X number of hours at this day or this week to figure out X, Y, and Z. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to figure out what steps I have to do to do it. And then I'm going to automate, automate, automate as much as I can so that I can stop thinking about it. 
after I've decided what I'm going to do. So that's a big behavioral thing I think is important to try to do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially a lot of the residents I talk to and advise on this stuff, it's just you got to spend some time with it in the beginning and then just tweak it a little bit here and again. But once you're done, a lot of this just kind of runs and then you don't have to think about it and you don't have to worry about it. And that's why those couple of months leading into residency are really, you know, after the match, but before you start um, could be really helpful and just kind of, all right, I'm going to get everything ready to go and then I can worry about learning to be the best doctor I can be. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah, so the, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard because there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are tugging at you and you're trying to prioritize what to do. And it's always the fight between what is important and what is urgent. And there's always urgent things that come up that are like, well, now I got to do this. Now I got to do this. And this important thing kind of gets kicked down, you know, a couple steps every time. And, um, that can eventually, if that isn't taken care of, some you, you can be put into a position where you're forced to make decisions and you haven't prepared yourself. And then that's when bad decisions can come to fruition. So that's it, it can be a little bit down the line, but I really try to, to teach people that taking care of things early, um, the important things, and, and like drawing the line, even on the, on urgent things, be like, I know that this is urgent, but I've got to take care of this important thing by such and such a date. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so, so you're moving along through residency, uh, somehow you're surviving, uh, and either you've you know done some of this work ahead or you haven't, but you're, you're coming to the end. There comes a point in every resident's life, like either at the end of their second to last year, or maybe sometimes midway through their final year that they're just like, oh man, uh, it's going to get real in a few months. And I'm, I am fully unprepared. And that comes from both a medical like knowledge standpoint and uh, from the just real life practicalities of being an attending physician. So, um, you know, if we were to dumb it down for people that are in their final year of training, uh, what what are they what do they need to do to uh, to start their attending life in the first few months and not be just totally underwater? Um, well, I mean, there's in my in my mind the the first thing that needs to be done is you need to shore up your short-term risk exposure um you know during residency in all likelihood you you know you don't have the ability to build up a substantial emergency fund uh most cannot afford disability insurance uh some some decide to do it and that's fine but um you know for the most part those short-term risks are there and i've observed a lot of conversation where residents they 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 look at their peers their non-medicine peers and there's two things that come to mind that they see in other families that they don't have um either like relationships like marriage partners or or uh, domestic partnerships um children like that segment and then the other is investments and savings you know other people in careers they like they, they've got like a, you know, perhaps like a five-year head start on them or perhaps even longer. And, and I think there's an inclination to, especially from the investment side, to be like, well, what should I be investing? What, what should I do so that I can start saving? And that's a very understandable question. But I always, I always start that, my response with, what are your short-term risks? You need to be building up cash. You need to be building up savings because 
yeah, you're about to come into, you know, a substantially higher salary, which is great and you deserve it. Um, but earmarking that money in a way so that you are finally getting to a place where if something were to happen unexpectedly with either work an injury or some, you know, family emergency, you having a substantial emergency fund, in my opinion, is the very first step to do. People say three months. I encourage people to have it. I mean, three months might be realistic at first, and that's all you can do. But over time, I encourage people to have six months, 12 months, 18 months worth of cash on hand. Um, it's not a great return on your money in terms of like interest rates, but it is a fantastic return on quality of life and peace of mind, in my opinion. Um, as you are building up your emergency fund, you also want to take the time to make sure that you're protecting the skill that you've taken years to develop. And so, you know, getting a disability policy, of course, is another way to protect against those short-term risks, you know, something that you can't control. As those things are in place, then you can then you can put in an investment strategy in place. And part of that is reviewing the benefits of your employer. So like, and that like, so you're like six months or longer away from starting, you know, from graduating residency. I know like so many of you are, you know, you're, you're interviewing at jobs, you're, you're uh, negotiating contracts. Um, that's the time to be looking into like what those benefits are in terms of 401k, 403b, um, or like additional retirement plans like the 401A or 457B, um, depending on the institution that you're going to work at, there are opportunities to defer taxes because, you know, if you're making 65 grand, you're keeping most of that now in terms of take-home pay. That becomes less and less the case as you get up in the two, three, four hundred thousand dollar range, especially north of four hundred thousand dollars, and that is likely to only get worse as the years progress because, uh, I mean, my understanding is that the new administration intends to increase the uh, the income tax bracket on uh, those making north of $400,000. Um, there's also going to be changes to, to the capital gains tax rate. And so, I mean, this is a lot of jargon. I don't mean to be bogging down with jargon, but <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, once you've protected those short-term risks, that is when you want to look at putting money into 401ks and trying to shelter as much of your income as your family budget can afford. Um, so these are those are the foundations of, of a financial plan. Um, and then as you progress, as you get those settled, then you can start to be thinking like, well, um, you can start to be thinking about like what your family is trying to achieve. You know, because, you know, having like five, $10 million or something when you're in your sixties, that's all well and good. But I can't tell you how many, how many families I've talked to who have like kids are like one, three, five years old. And they're thinking, okay, yeah, I'm in debt right now. I don't want my lot, my kids' lives to be boring because I'm just trying to pay off debt. I want to invest in experiences now. And to me, that is a, that is a very, very important part of a financial plan. And so that once once you've taken care of the short-term risks, you've established some basic investment like through your 401k, then you look at your cash flow, what your take-home pay is, what your family needs and and think how can I manage the two priorities of paying off the rest of my debt but also living in a way that shows my kids that I'm trying to invest in them now so that we can enjoy life, so that we can do things together while they're young. Yeah. I mean, I love that. It, you know, it, there's certainly a 
two schools of thought when it comes to debt, right? You have the uh, the anti debt, complete anti debt crowd. All debt needs to be eliminated immediately. Uh, and then you have people that are just like, well, you know, it'll be here when I die, which, you know, I don't, I don't subscribe to either one of them. Um, I, I agree with, with living life now and having a plan, but I certainly wasn't, wasn't going to, you know, be living under a bridge eating baked beans for three years just to get rid of my student debt either. Right. <laughs> um, exactly. So- it's uh, but I think it, it causes a lot of anxiety in people when they see the big numbers. Right. I think, uh, uh, you know, so let's so you know, people say, well, OK, Tyler, that's that's fine. I got to I got to put up three, six, 12, 18 months. I got to get disability insurance, life insurance potentially um, and work on all those things. But I got a million dollars of debt between my spouse and I and sixty thousand dollars of credit card debt. And I, I don't know what to do. So, well, where you know, where, where do you start? Well, I mean, you're right. Like the that that figure of debt, it is it's overwhelming. You look at it and you're like, how do I even begin to address it? Um, I mean, if you're, I mean, under the presumption that you are just, you are responsible for paying it off and there's no loan forgiveness in sight. Um, you need to like have a, you need to figure out what payment you can make in what period of time that can be automated within your budget. So, um, for example, there's a family I'm working with in Iowa who has, they've got uh, 460,000 in loans and he's a, he's a family doc. So he's not making like, you know, 400,000 plus or anything like that. Um, they, within the course of their you know budget, they're like, well, we've got, we're on an IDR right now of a thousand dollars then we're going to pay that. But what can we do to streamline this so that it's not just some ambiguous tunnel that we're going down forever and we don't know when it's going to end? Um, The conclusion in their case is that they have to view it, unfortunately, like an additional mortgage. It's going to be like, you know, for them in their case, it's going to be a 20-year road because you know, if they, if they refinance and the, yeah, sure you can get like a two and a half percent, but I mean, two and a half percent on $470,000, that's a ton of money. Um, so like, it's still going to be a high payment. And so to make it work for their particular situation, they have to stretch out the repayment over 20 years. And it's, I mean, it's not, it's not nice to, it's not like the ideal situation at all, but it is the reality. Um, when I talk to people about debt payoff and they're, you know, one, there's one thing to discuss the numbers, but there's also just the stress about it and thinking about it. And you can get rid of the thinking about it if you automate it. So what I tell people is, yeah, this sucks. It's, it's terrible, but we've got one way to get out of this without causing you to live a life where you feel like you don't have any joy, where you're not really getting to do anything. And so we, you know, you put yourself on that sort of a map, if it's a 10 year plan, 15, 20 year, but it's realistic within your budget so that you have money to go on vacations, you know, when that becomes a thing again. And, you know, if we can, uh, you know, we can make sure that we have money to, you know, to, to enjoy things each week, if we can go out to dinner, if we can, you know, just be, 
have like some normalcy in life. people. Yeah. 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 Cause like, I mean, like if you had a choice between, if you had a choice between living a natural budget and when I say natural budget, I mean one where you're not constantly thinking about it. We're like, Oh, can we afford this much at the grocery store? Can we take this trip to go visit the in-laws? Can we, can, you know, can we, buy a new air conditioner, like that sort of mentality is really stressful. And I try to help people to avoid that sort of thinking of micromanagement of the budget. Better to better to have a 20 year payout where you can have a more natural budget in life than like a 12 or 15 year stressful time period, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, you know, for uh, to use myself as an example, I've got I mean, my wife's on track for forgiveness, but I've got a 400 plus amount of debt left. I think I got, I put it on the 20 year plan. I've got like 18 and a half years left. And yes, if, uh, if I want to put more money at it, I of course can, but at this point it doesn't stress me out because it just is what it is, right? It's, uh, it's another payment and it's a big payment. Don't get me wrong, but it is what it is. Yeah, no, exactly. It's all about managing the behavior because, you know, when we think about something that we don't like, something that is uh, that that feels unfair or unjust, um, if we don't stop ourselves from thinking about it, we are we are chipping away at the quality of our life. We are allowing finances to take away from what really matters. And I am all about like I mean, money to me, money decisions is all about trying to translate it with time. How can we convert this money into time? And how can we convert this financial decision into more time for things that I actually value? So um, the, you know, managing our behavior has everything to do with that. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I struggled with it uh, a lot because I, which honestly just comes from, from uh, parental influences. You know, my father was a penny pincher and was, you know, we couldn't afford this. We couldn't afford that. And the, it, it was always a topic of discussion. And, you know, that doesn't easily went, go away, even though you're making two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, when that's baked into you. Um, but I think some of these like small decisions using automation, um, setting things up to just to just be what they are help with some of that. But, yeah, of course, you don't want to be saying like, yeah, can I can I afford a new desk chair or something when you have a joint uh, family income of $500,000 a year. It's absurd, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but it, happen- it happens, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. No, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a strange reality to have that high of an income and feel poor, <laughs> you know? Uh, I, I talk to many people that do. I mean, it, it, it's, because, you know, your money goes to this and that, and then it's just flying out as soon as it comes in. That's, uh, and it's not, and usually it's not the people with the giant mansions and the Lamborghinis either. It's people living very humbly, but, um, you know, I think that's what's misunderstood by the general public. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think that there's, I mean, there's always, you know, there's a place for like acknowledging your own stresses, like regardless of the fact that life could be awful, so much more awful. Of course it can always be more awful. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I have a, a good friend, uh, in Sweden, we, we lived there for a few years and, uh, I, a good friend that I met there, he's, he's from Burundi and 
he grew up uh, living near a river where crocodiles would regularly attack um, and sometimes kids would get killed. But it, oh was, but it was just it was just life. It was like and at the time he was telling me, he's like, you know, it was it was obviously really sad, but it was just kind of like, well, this is you know, this is this is what it is. And he's like, but now living in Sweden, there are things that are far less tragic than that that cause me stress. And that doesn't mean that the stress is like not valid. It is. It's, and so I guess I'm just saying that like within our own worlds, within our own bubbles, we need to give room for what what is troubling us. Um, of course, we don't lose perspective. We want to like appreciate and be gra- gracious, um, be uh, to show gratitude for the many good things that we have. That sort of balance where we give that give space for our own, you know, our own stresses and produce behavior that will help us to mitigate that is important. But also having that attitude of gratitude uh, helps us to, you know, become a better person. Well said, well said. I, you know, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on Tyler is just kind of uh, investor behavior and, and how to think about, at the global, you know, economics in general, right? So um, we often hear about quote doctor investments uh, where the, that are just horrible and people get taken for a ride. Um, and then uh, you see things like our, our recent crash in March, where uh, even one of my colleagues was like, "Oh, I'm just I'm selling out everything in my 401k." I'm like, "Oh my god, please don't!" You know, <laughs> like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know how much money and like look back now and how much you would have. Uh, made, I, you know, if you didn't do that, if you continued to just buy and, and hold steady. But, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some of this comes from uh, just lack of knowledge and awareness, but it's hard to combat some of the panic you feel when everything's like fallen behind you, right? Definitely. So um, I could address both uh, segments that you just mentioned. Um, you know, the first when it comes to uh, particular products that get sold to physicians um that that is it's it's been a bigger problem in the past it's not quite as prevalent now but it still does happen i'd say like every two weeks i'm probably talking with a family who's uh, still you know they're they've been sold uh typically it's an insurance product that was sold out of fear um and i mean my my advice on that is to simply get second and third opinions when it comes to investments that find you. If you, you know, if someone comes to you and they're like, Hey, I've got this thing. And, uh, you know, it could be a variable universal life insurance policy. It could be a whole life policy. It could be an annuity. Um, all, all those things are different types of insurance products. And none of them are inherently bad. Like they're, they do have a place in certain situations. Um, but understanding their cost and like the ramifications, both short and long term, the motivation behind the person that is bringing the product to your attention, that there's a lot of detail there. And I am certain that 99% of doctors don't have the time to research all of it. I mean, the prospectuses on some of these products are extensive. They're and they're, they can be overwhelming, even for someone who's in the industry. And so rather than, rather than just shutting down every conversation or conversely, just 
accepting it and buying whatever someone tells you to, I encourage people to find a compromise. Take the product information, find somebody else that you trust and have them give their opinion before you act and really take your time. Um, rarely do big financial product decisions need to be made in a hurry. If someone's trying to rush you to buy something, uh, that is a huge red flag. So just take your time and and get multiple second opinions. Um, uh, have you have you uh, run into that before? Um, you know, I see it every once in a while, and then there's always you know Uncle Bob with his hot stock tip too, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think. I think there's a lot of it on like LinkedIn. You see that a lot, you know, people preying on physicians, whether, you know, they be in your industry or just like people trying to get, get, you know, big investments from people that have money. Um, I think there's more awareness to it nowadays than there was like 20 years ago. Uh, but it, it, it happens, you know, mm -hmm. definitely happens. Yeah. And then the other issue that you mentioned, basically like, you know, just typical stock market activity, you know, when you invest, you're putting you're putting it completely at risk. It doesn't matter how it's allocated, if it's a mixture of stocks and bonds, if it's all stocks, if, it, if it's all bonds, any variation of that is carrying a measure of risk. And so like, I mean, what happened last March is a is a good example. Uh, you know, and you're talking about your, your colleague that got scared and was like, I'm gonna sell. Um, part of mitigating that behavior is what I mentioned earlier, and that's establishing the foundation of a really strong emergency fund and good quality insurance so that if you are putting money into the market, you know, I've got at least X number of months of cash. If, if everything just, you know, if I lost my job, if there was like just a financial catastrophe, I have a cushion here to fall back on where I'm not looking at my index fund position and wondering, you know, if things go south, do I need to cash that out? They want to avoid that sort of thought process. And so that's why building a good foundation is so important, in my opinion. Um, the second thing is to consider your own confidence in the world economy. If you believe that more than half of humanity is interested in humanity continuing to exist and prosper, if you think that overall we collectively want to keep building things, to keep creating things, inventing things, taking care of our families, continuing to grow 20 years, 30 years, 40 years from now, the economy will continue to grow and investing in the market will be reflected in how that economy grows. And so that long-term thinking will help you to withstand some of the short-term you know, short uh, rough times. Yeah. That's great. Well said. Makes a lot of sense. Um, Tyler, I want to transition the show just a little bit to get to know you as the guest uh, a little bit better. Um, so uh, what do you like to do for fun? Um, I like to play the piano and saxophone. I've, uh, I, I really enjoy playing jazz and listening to it. Um, I, uh, I've actually been, I mean, right now, you know, because of the pandemic, I've been able to spend, you know, a lot more time with uh, my wife and son and uh, my boy, he's, he's two and a half. And I love, uh, I, I'm actually teaching him. I mean, he doesn't, obviously he can't play the saxophone, but I play it with him uh, a few days a week. I really like teaching him uh, what I know. Uh, and so that, 
seeing him grow and seeing how he how he responds to uh, you know to different things that I want to teach him and to, to show him is it's everything to me. I absolutely love that. Um, under normal circumstances, I would love I would love to travel, and I love the North. Um, people think I'm kidding when I tell them that one of the first trips that my wife and I took after we got married was to Ontario in February. Uh, we really <laughs> <laughs> we we really like the cold. Um, and, uh, the, there's, it, it's just, we love the snow. We love the, the, the crisp air. Um, and we love the North. Um, I mean, it's part of the reason why we moved to Sweden for a few years is we just love that sort of climate. So, but that, those, those are some of the things I enjoy doing. Yeah. Well, if you love the snow, you can have some of mine up there in Buffalo, New York. We got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys always get hit real bad. Um, yeah, we do. We're here in we're here in Southwest Michigan. We're like thirty miles north of the Indiana border on Lake Michigan, um, mm-hmm. and we get sometimes we get hit with the lake effect, and uh, it it can be it can be brutal. But when it happens, I am I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it just dumps every once in a while, but that's all right. Um, I like the seasons as well, yeah. and I think the sack. You know, I I've, I think the saxophone is the sexiest instrument there is. Personally, the sounds it makes. I I maybe I'm biased, but I have always said that I love. Do you, it. Do you play uh, too? Uh, no, no. I I actually play the banjo. Um, really, so totally different genre. But uh, yeah, um, I play five string bluegrass banjo. That is awesome. I've always wanted to play the guitar or a variation of it. Um, I think it sounds very. I don't. Know, it's it's very warm. And I think it's it's such an easy instrument to like bring to parties and to, you know just pick up and play. Um, the saxophone is really cool, but it's a bit more, you know, you, there's like lots of little parts and everything, and it's not such a great instrument to play all by itself. Yeah, that's fair. My brother-in-law lives nearby and plays the trumpet. We're trying to figure out how to do a banjo trumpet duet and see what it would sound like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think one of these days. Yeah, there's something yeah, we'll there. figure it out. <laughs> so, Tyler, do you have a book recommendation for the listeners? It doesn't have to be finance related. Maybe just something you picked up lately. Um, actually, I thought of I've been I've been thinking of a new book that I really like that is money related, and then another one that's a bit older that is not. Uh, the first one that is that is money related. Um, it just came out in September. It's called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Have you heard of it? No, no. I would highly recommend it. The Psychology of Money. Um, Morgan Housel is a fantastic writer. Um, it's uh, its theme is timeless lessons on wealth, greed, and happiness. Um, it it goes to the foundation of how I personally view money and the way in which I try to teach others. Um, so I, I would highly recommend that book. You can get it on Amazon for like fifteen bucks. Um, the other book that I really like is The Jungle. Um, have you, uh, have you read that book before? I have not. No, it is. Um, it's an, it's a book that was published in 1905. Um, it's written by Upton Sinclair. It is actually quite a downer. <laughs> um, it's a, it's about, um, a, uh, a, an immigrant family that moves to the United States. They move to Chicago part of the, I mean, I'm from Chicago, so that has a connection to me, but they're working in the meatpacking industry. And I, I like to read it because it reminds me how important it is 
to try as much as we can as individuals and as families to not get sucked into a situation where we are just a cog in a in a large system that will abuse us. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're and this to me, this applies, of course, in medicine in many respects um, and career decisions that doctors make. But it really applies to any of us as we think about the decisions that we make um, that affect our career, our families, where we live, what we prioritize. Um, the world we live in, you know, it's a there's lots of business. There's lots of people that are always trying to make money. And it's our personal responsibility to try to keep a grasp on our own future, on our own time, so that we are really using the precious time that we have for what we really value. This book demonstrates a very a very negative example of a family that they they put, they thought that they were going to do something that would give them some freedom, but it ultimately led to a lot of pain. And I, when I read it, it just reminds me to try to think really carefully about the steps that I take. Uh, so I think it's good to have those sobering moments to make sure that I'm not taking life for granted. Fair enough. Yeah, I'll have to put that one on the, the never-ending list. That's great. <laughs> um, so, Tyler, you've given us a lot of advice in this show, but uh, if you could just give early career physicians uh, just one single piece of advice, what would that be? Uh. I, I would say to, you know, be, be honest with yourself about the way that you view money. Um, you know, you had mentioned that like your own, in your own family, like the way in which your parents viewed money affected you. And that is the case for every single one of us. Um, there's positives, there's negatives in which we were raised uh, surrounding financial decisions. And if we can be if you can be honest with yourself about how you view money, that can be the beginning of you making healthy and good financial decisions so that you're really making the most of your life. Love it. Great. And uh, for I know you said you're on Twitter, but how do we find you uh, if people want to get in touch? Um, well, I mean, my my website is uh, olsonconsultingmi.com. Uh, MI is in Michigan. Um and so you can see like the sort of services that I offer. Um, it, it's a fairly limited practice. It's just me. So I don't work with that many families. Um, my my uh, m- main activity, if you want to see me back, you know, communicating and talking with people is on Twitter. Uh, my my, uh, my uh, handle is uh, Olson Planner. It's O-L-S-O-N-P-L-A-N-N-E-R. Um, and then I also have a podcast. It's called Money Mediator. Uh, basically, you know, focusing on you know trying to make good financial decisions relative to our own relationship with money. Uh, so, if any, but if you want to find me, the fastest way to find me is on Twitter. Awesome, great, yeah. I will uh, put all that in the show notes for the listeners. So, uh, Tyler, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing some of your knowledge with the listeners. This has uh, been really, you know, really educational for myself as well. So, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. All right. Take care now. Okay. Before we end, let's give you the link for our sponsor again. If you need help reviewing your employment contract before you sign, reach out to a company with great online reviews and a reputation for doing that and more. Find Resolve at drpodcastnetwork.com slash resolve to get the review process started today. What a fantastic episode with financial planner Tyler Olson. 
I like that he's a little different in his approach from other financial planners. He focuses on enjoying today and still working towards a better tomorrow. I especially liked his discussion of the different financial moves to make as you progress through your training. That's all I have today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor and leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the show out there. Additionally, if you could follow me on Twitter at, at TalkToMeDoc, that's Talk, the number two, me, D-O-C. As always, if you're feeling dissatisfied with your career or you're ready to take the next step, reach out to me at andrewtisserdo.com and schedule a free strategy session. I'm sure I can give you some guidance. Thank you so much for listening again. Have a great day. Be safe out there. And remember, keep talking. All opinions expressed by the guest in this episode are solely the guest's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Andrew Tissardio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof. The guest's opinions are based upon information he or she considers reliable, but Andrew Tissardio, TalkToMe.LC, nor any affiliates thereof warrant its completeness or accuracy. The guest, Andrew Tissardio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided in this episode. The guest statements and opinions are subject to change without notice.